Okay, everyone can hear me. Um, the topic of this evening's um, conversation, discussion, I don't know if we can call it a debate, we'll see, uh, is uh, why are the Gulf states so interested in the Horn of Africa? And uh, hopefully we will be talking about a wide range of uh, countries, ranging from Saudi Arabia to Somalia and from the Emirates to Ethiopia and Eritrea. And we will be talking about complex geopolitical rivalry, uh, issues like war and peace, and of course, uh, big money with strings attached. And fortunately, we have a very competent panel that will help us unravel some of these knots. And it's my pleasure to introduce them. Uh, Stig Arne Hansen is a professor at the NMBU, uh, that's the Norwegian University of Life Sciences in Aarhus, where I grew up. Um, he has worked on a wide range of issues, including geopolitics of the Horn of Africa and the wider Red Sea region. Reji Berketev is a senior researcher and associate professor at the Nordic Africa Institute in Uppsala. He has done extensive research on conflict and state building uh, in the Horn of Africa. And the third panelist is Jens Petter Tjempelud. He uh, was Norway's ambassador to Ethiopia between 2006 to 2010. He has also been Norway's ambassador to uh, Sudan and special envoy in Sudan and South Sudan. And currently he is our ambassador in Nigeria. You can begin with giving them a round of applause. Thank you. Now, before I uh, let Stigarda uh, begin, um, and with all due respect to the, the panelists, uh, the observant ones in the audience might have noticed that the gender diversity of the panel is, shall we say, non-existent. <laughs> and um, the organizers have told me that they have done everything they can to try to secure a better balance in the, in the panel, but they unfortunately didn't um, uh, achieve that this time. Uh, yes. Okay, so Stig Arler will start. He will uh, talk about, um, he will give us an overview of the, the Gulf engage engagement in the Gulf, uh, Horn of Africa, and he will be talking specifically about Qatar, I think. Uh, and then Reggie will uh, take over and talk about um, how the external influence uh, is affecting state rebuilding in Somalia. And then finally, Jens Petter will talk about how the Gulf involvement is playing out in Ethiopia. And after that, we will have a discussion here within the, with the panelists. And finally, we will open up for questions uh, in the end. Uh, but first, Stig Arla, uh, you have five minutes each, and I will try to check my clock. I'll give you a notice. You can use the microphone, I think. Yes, uh, today I'm going to uh, speak about the strange uh, phenomena. The strange phenomena is uh, basically the Gulf countries. Uh, one of the countries I'm talking about is Qatar with 300,000 inhabitants. That means that uh, Oslo is, uh, has a larger uh, amount of citizens than Qatar. They have uh, more uh, people living here, but the citizenship is still very low. And then we talk about the Emirates, and then we talk maybe about around 900,000. So these are small countries, and they punch far beyond their weight as of late in international politics. And has, this has wider repercussions outside of the Horn. Um, and uh, they have been somewhat of an enigma to a lot of actors. And in the past, they have been underestimated as well. And it's sometimes hard to understand the internal dynamics. I think it's very important for us when we talk about uh, Ethiopia, Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, to a certain extent Kenya, 
to understand that there are dynamics within these countries, Qatar and the Emirates, that makes their engagement more complex and that makes uh, a, a total impact at the Horn of Africa. If you look at Qatar's foreign policy engagement, it's rather interesting because if you go back more than 40 years in Qatarian history, it was a meek foreign policy actor. To a certain extent, uh, what you should expect from a country of 300,000 inhabitants, at that time 200,000 citizens, let me rephrase myself. Um, what happened was during the 90s, you saw a buildup of American forces, and in September 11th, this escalated. So you can see that uh, in one sense, this gave Qatar more confidence abroad. Uh, so through the 90s, it's a stronger and stronger foreign policy agenda of Qatar, uh, hitting outside uh, of Qatar. One of the early signs of this was uh, the establishment of Al Jazeera. Uh, at the start, Al Jazeera was rather controversial in the early phases of the war on terror. As time went on, Al Jazeera established a reputation for actually uh, becoming more and more neutral. My argument here tonight is that uh, Al Jazeera is not always neutral. It's following a Qatari national line most of the time. And, uh, you can see that uh, in relation to hardcore political issues of Qatar um, as the Muslim Brotherhood, because Qatar has their solid allies in the world, which has more or less clearly established today. That is basically the Muslim Brotherhood in its varied shape around the world, it's Turkey. And Turkey has supported Qatar in its face off with uh, Saudi Arabia. It is has uh, forces inside Qatar, and ironically enough, it has Pentagon in the United States who are very positive to hosting their bases. Outside of Somalia and Ethiopia, you've seen this alliance working very thoroughly. You've seen Turkey and Qatar aligning in Libya. So far in the Horn, this has been weakened, but it's something that we should keep in mind. Qatar also has rather uh, lacking control of the members of the royal family. So they have a large royal family, 6,000 persons today. Uh, rather very large in fact. And uh, they have a tradition for allowing some of these central members a rather free reign on the foreign policy. So they are opening. Uh, in one of my research uh, reports, I refer that they, to them as spacers, basically doing their own thing, not really that thoroughly controlled by Qatar central. So if we step back and if you look at Qatar and their foreign policy interests, some of them are concerning the goals that I quote. They have uh, somewhat favoritism towards political Islamic Sunni movements. Not necessarily the hardcore ones, but uh, rather uh, some of the Muslim Brotherhoods around the world. That has clearly been there in the past. We've seen Qatar engaged in an ad hoc basis because of important persons with access to the, uh, uh, to, to, to the royal family, like the uh, mother of the current Emir, uh, Sheikh Musa, who in one sense was very important for the Libya engagement. Like Wada Hanfar, the Palestinian journalists who to a certain extent also have had some influence on the Somali engagement of Qatar, but especially in relation to Palestine. So you can see some of the individuals being there. You can also see Qatar having an uh, engagement because of status. They're very interested in attracting international investment. They're very interested in attracting uh, attention internationally, so you'll see them investing in port, uh, sports events, etc., etc. 
Uh, so in uh, other words, that's where you have uh, Qatar. It's personal context. It's the Muslim Brotherhood and the Sunni political Islamic movement. And to a certain extent, it's stated. Qatar has changed foreign policy-wise. The team of Qatar from uh, 2000 to 2011, 2012, was peacemaking. And that's how they entered into the war at the start, doing peace between uh, um, uh, between uh, Yemen and Eritrea, actually, uh, part of the consequence of some of their engagement in Yemen. So it was spreading slowly but steady. Uh, from the Arab Spring and onwards, you've seen that Qatar, in the large, to a larger extent, has been interested also in uh, basically um, uh, military interventions around the world and military support. So they changed kind of profile. The other enigma is the larger neighbor of Qatar to the south, but also a rather specific and special actor. You have United Arab Emirates. United Arab Emirates, it's a strange constellation where you have the Abu Dhabi royal family, Al Nayan family, uh, traditionally leading the entity in foreign policy, and the somewhat weaker Makum family of Dubai having a weaker role, but still influential. And what we have seen over time is basically uh, the uh, Nayan family becoming more important and the Makum family decreasing a little bit in importance. And you can see a lot of the military engagements of uh, the Emirates abroad being engaged basically by, uh, by the Al Nayan family, not the Makum family. And th this is a little bit important for the war because in the war you have a lot of financial engagement from the Emirates. That's basically the shipping, uh, the port company, DP World, who's spreading to, uh, to, to Somalia and in other places, taking over ports, running ports. Basically, um, to a certain extent, uh, then acting on behalf of Dubai. So this is not Abu Dhabi, it's rather he more heavily connected to Dubai. Uh, you have also seen an engagement from the Emirates around the world in fighting the Muslim Brotherhood, completely contradicting Qatar. Uh, and that is because the largest opposition within Qatar to the royal families of the Qatari Emirates is basically from their al-Islam. Maybe this is confusing for some of the Somalis, but uh, Emirates have their own al-Islam. There are several Muslim Brotherhood affiliated al-Islams around the world. So there you have the Emirates as well, you know, engaging against the Muslim Brotherhood, engaging partly because of status, increasingly engaging financially around the Red Sea, and very often we see in uh, Yemen, but also maybe in Somalia, engaging with a kind of federalist agenda. That's what we see in Yemen as well. So much, uh, all the things I would have liked to tell you, but the one here is now cutting me short, I will leave. Uh, no, I mean, you will have a chance to talk about this uh, later, but uh, uh, we will uh, uh, go on to move on to, to Debbie, please. Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> uh, probably I will start by making two general uh, statements or principles. That is, uh, the fundamental issue with Somalia is uh, state building and reviving the states. Uh, you know, for the last 30 years, has been how to revive the states. Uh, in that, uh, probably we, we, we need to, to take into consideration two fundamental issues. One is uh, state building is by its very nature 
critical. As a critical, it has to be inspired. Power means contestation by all stakeholders within, within the country. So what we have is, uh, in order to build a functional, a sustained state, then you have to involve all stakeholders. They have to be able to compromise, to dialogue, negotiate, and finally to reach a consensus. That is a fundamental uh, principle. The second principle is uh, nation building is also a domestic by its very nature, which means it has to take into consideration the reality of the society. It has to take into consideration political, economic, history, culture. Now, if we take these two as the fundamental principles, what was the external role in the reconstruction or revival of the small state? We have many actors. We have on the African side of the Red Sea, the neighboring countries, and then we have the Gulf states. Uh, if we take 2000 as the entry point of the last 20 years of reconstituting the small state, we have the ARPA uh, process, which the Lucians took the initiative. And they constituted a national institutions, national government, called uh, national transitional, or national uh, transitional institutions in Canada. It failed because uh, some actors within the region, especially Ethiopia and uh, the United States was not happy with that, because that process excluded some of the main warlords like and then that was substituted by what we call the Kenyan process. And then the Kenyan process brought the transitional federalism, government and transitional federalism institutions. This shows the involvement of the regional uh, states, neighboring states, in the process which was supposed to be by its very nature, political and domestic. Uh, to that, Recently also we have the balkanization of Somalia. Now from 1991 we have Somaliland, a planned state. We declared its independence in 1991. You have from 1998 Puntland, and recently we have in southern Somalia different entities planned with it. And that was uh, a decision by a guard taking the ethnic federal model of Ethiopia. So that kind of balkanization also gave to the Gulf states to be involved in Somalia in the process of state building and reconstruction of the Somali state. Now we have, at least since 2017, two coalitions, one Turkey and Qatar, 
one side, and we have Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the Emirates on the other side. Uh, Qatar and Turkey have been supporting the federal state. They supported the national, the Somali federal government. The Emirati, and then uh, some extent of the Saudis have been supporting the clan states, whether in southern Somalia or in Somaliland and in Turkey as well. One of the vivid involvement, especially of the United Arab Emirates, is in the establishment of military bases in both uh, Somaliland, Puntland, and then the renting of now, what does this mean to the revival and reconstitution of Somalia as, as an entity, as one entity? This challenges the sovereignty of Somalia. Because uh, having a military base in the component elements of the states, that is Somaliland and Puntland, means challenging the sovereignty of Somalia. Having ports without involving the federal government, the Sandra Smart government, is also erodes the entity of Somalia as a state. You know, the federal government has been appealing to the United Nations Special Security Council. Uh, until now, there is no uh, outcome of that. Now, the involvement of the Gaza states uh, the way I understand it is uh, how states try their economic power into political and diplomatic power. The Gulf states, whether they are in Somalia, in Djibouti, Ethiopia, and Ethiopia, what they are trying to do is they are trying to buy influences from their economic power political and diplomatic power. So uh, the role of the Gulf states, especially in, in Somalia, it could be positive, it could also be negative. The positive aspect is they have been having some uh, economic investment. Uh, for instance, until the fallout between the Emiratis and the federal government. There were some health and education institutions run by the Emiratis. When the relationship between the federal government and the Emiratis soared, then they have closed. But until that, this was some of the positive aspects. But also at the same time, supporting and dealing with regional component states also challenges the reconstruction and the revival of the Somali state. The same with the Maris are now having military base in Ethiopia, in Asaf, uh, in Djibouti they are trying, they have in, in Somaliland. And this is the eroding the territorial entity integrity of every state. Because once a state allows a 
an external deprivation. Which means that state has no confidence in reality and control for its own Okay. Uh, we will be coming back to some of these issues, but uh, for now, I think we have to move on to, to events in Tibet. Thank you very much. Um, referring to, to what Stevie Allen said in, in uh, 2007, Ethiopia said they had two countries in the world which they had some problem. It was Qatar and Norway. Norway. Qatar and Norway. Okay. Second, uh, I mean, when it comes to, um, to Somalia and the transitional federal government, uh, Ethiopia won the honor that they don't like the outcome of it. And that brings me to what I'm going to say something about. Uh, and that's uh, how the Horn of Africa has opened up to the Gulf and given the Gulf countries the possibility to enter the Horn of Africa. In 2006-07, Meles Zanari, the uh, Prime Minister of Ethiopia, said, if we do not stop Saudi Arabia, uh, we will be in deep shit 20 hours from now. Uh, there was a recognition of the deep contradictions in the Ethiopian society and the vulnerability for uh, external influence which uh, made him say this, and um, these uh, contradictions have been uh, and could be misused, and Meles Zenabe saw South Africa, uh, Saudi Arabia as more dangerous than Eritrea, and had all their focus on, on, on uh, destabilizing Ethiopia. So um, uh, this led to um, uh, the transformation after the death of, of uh, Meles Zenabe, uh, undermined the of the ruling party, EPRF, uh, weakened the TPRF, who was uh, the lead power of the EPRF, and uh, the main defender of the federal state form formation in Ethiopia. Um, this was kept somehow um, alive during Haile Mariam through the transition to Abiy, and when Abiy, um, the current prime minister, came into power, uh, you can see the divisions of, uh, of Ethiopia, which um, seriously weakens the ability of the Ethiopians to, uh, to, to keep um, other foreign powers out of, uh, of the country. Um, uh, it's, um, I mean, it's very difficult to say something negative of the Nobel Peace Prize laureate. And uh, when he, he held a speech here, it was obviously a, a brilliant speech, but uh, the, what, in, what maybe unintentionally happened is that uh, you see growing conflicts, uh, growing discord within uh, Ethiopia, number of, um, of uh, internal conflicts uh, coming to the fore, including between uh, the Tigrayans and the Amharas, internally between the Oromos, between the Oromos and the Tigrayans, and uh, of course, um, as someone said, um, uh, the only winner of the developments in Ethiopia is uh, is Ayatollah Gorki. Uh, he has paid nothing to see this transformation um, in Ethiopia. Um, the um, uh, the EPRF was a very strong politically ideological uh, unit. You could disagree or agree. Uh, with what they say, but um, it has sowed a huge discord inside Ethiopia. There's no political direction which is uh, easy to uh, to, uh, to understand. Um, this um, continues in, in a way 
announcement, you had a very, very strong Ethiopian foreign policy based on the foreign policy document of 1991, which is now uh, not uh, any more uh, valid, which uh, has seriously weakened the Ethiopian foreign policy, which is now more or less from the, from the Prime Minister's office and from the Minister of Foreign Affairs. IDAP was a foreign policy um, institution used uh, by Ethiopia to uh, impose solutions and, um, uh, in, the, in the region. It's been seriously uh, uh, weakened. And um, also, um, I mean, the economy is really, I mean, what uh, the weakened economic growth of Ethiopia also makes it more vulnerable to seeking other alliances than what the uh, economic growth in Ethiopia um, made it possible for them not to, to be vulnerable to, to, uh, to uh, Gulf countries. So uh, these um, five or six points uh, has made Ethiopia the big power on the African, uh, in the Horn of Africa, very uh, vulnerable to uh, influence from, from abroad, uh, which uh, makes it also very politically vulnerable because I mean you have, you have the 56% uh, population between uh, Muslims and, and Christians, uh, more or less 50-50, um, and some kind of discord is is um, is formed between um, the different uh, groups. So um, as I started saying, uh, Ethiopia wanted to have and it was the number one foreign policy. Um, Occupation was Somalia. Now you see Somalia is now uh, open to, to influence from, from so many forces, um, which um, obviously uh, is of great concern to Ethiopia. But my, my point, uh, what I would like to say something about here, is uh, trying to explain why Ethiopia is now opening up to, to external influence. Thank you. Thank you. That's actually less than five minutes. Uh, uh, I want to pick up something uh, that Gredi said, and it's a bit about uh, foreign military influence um, and how that made um, national sovereignty impossible or, or very difficult. And I saw that you were totally agreeing with that. Why, is, why not? Can you explain? Um, yeah, there are several aspects there. You know, first, uh, it's ironic when you talk about uh, military bases as uh, eroding national sovereignty. Uh, the example of Qatar itself is contradicting that because it's the American military base who opened up their uh, foreign policy because they become safer when they were acting in relations to Saudi Arabia. Before that, Saudi Arabia was a push around. And I think for Eritrea, I think this was uh, not eroding sovereignty. I think to a certain extent, Eritrea had to change their ways. You know, the Eritrea had a somewhat close relationship to Iran and was more or less pressured against the wall. I saw some of these meetings myself. Either you have to try or not. And then uh, basically, uh, you have an Emirati engagement because of Yemen, basically. So it helped them in relations to Saudi Arabia and strengthened uh, Eritrea to a certain extent. And I also want to highlight inside uh, Somalia, you know, uh, Somalia has to find uh, a solution for its problem that takes into consideration that Juntan and Somaliland has been established as entities for such so many years and had delivered something at the local level which the Mogadishu government had some more problems with. And to highlight Qatar being against uh, national unity in Somalia, now uh, Emirates being against, and uh, 
Qatar uh, being for. It has it has some merit to it because of the uh, military bases, which I agree with you. But if you go to the, uh, of course, if you go to the opposition also in Mogadishu, they will say that the Qatari funding of the ruling uh, party, or rather the president and the prime minister, is directly interfering in the Somali political process. So it's very controversial. And you could say the same thing about Ethiopia. It's interesting that we, we sit there, we know that Ethiopia now again is intervening in the larger amount in the different region. Um, and I want to very quickly say that I really appreciate that you brought in the Wahhabis, and because it's not without precedence. The, the present situation, if we talked in the 70s and if we talked in the 80s, we would probably talk about Saudi Arabia and charity. Indeed, Al Islam was created in Saudi Arabia. Several other of the currents were coming uh, out of the Gulf, but they were of the Gulf countries. It was basically Saudi Arabia that was a stronger actor, and now we see these very small, tiny states that increase in their influence. Yeah, would you like to comment what Stigerle just said um, first about uh, you know, military, foreign military influence well, enabling some sense yeah, of sovereignty? I think what we need to distinguish is between small and medium nations. Qatar as a small nation, uh, probably we can make an analogy with Djibouti. Uh, Djibouti, in addition to the French military base, now we have almost all the big powers Djibouti. And that is very important for the survival of Djibouti. So, uh, external military bases could strengthen sovereignty, but also uh, if we look at it from a legitimacy, the popular legitimacy point of view, it also erodes the legitimacy of the state. Now, uh, Qatari and uh, Emirati involvement in Somalia. You know, uh, from whose perspective? If now Qatari relationship with the federal government is ideal or good, then the regional states naturally will take it. At the same time, when the Emirates are supporting the regional Islamic states, the federal government is not happy with that. Uh, when it comes to Ethiopia and Eritrea, Ethiopia is a powerful partner. Now we see a fundamental transformation in Ethiopia. And that is, uh, for me, there has been a shift in two dimensions in 1918. One is uh, from a power concentration in the north in terms of territorial concentration, it has gone to the south temporarily. In terms of the demography, power has shifted from the Abyssinian, the Amhara dialect, to the Oromo, to the south. These are the two fundamental changes. These fundamental changes, in my understanding, have a fundamental effect on the region as a whole. Now, Ethiopia, instead of an Abyssinian empire state trying to control the rest of the region, you have an Oromo probably sympathetic with the other neighboring states. So, in, in Ethiopia, even though it is superpower, uh, there is no need for external military whatever it's for its legitimacy or its existence, but still what is happening uh, in the long run 
in fundamental region of integration processes, my understanding of it is. Of course, in the short term, uh, no one knows where Ethiopia is going now. Because uh, those who lost power, whether it is the Tigray, the PDLF, or the Amhara, the traditional dealers of power, they feel uh, power has ceased from them to be all of this. So this is a complex reconfiguration of power structure. Do you agree, uh, Mr. Kuhn? I, I don't think we have seen the, the last word on that. I think, um, uh, as I said initially, the, the Oromos are not united. I think we will have an indication when the, when the next election comes. Yes. But, uh, the, the, the Oromos are, are more split than we do believe. They hold the, somehow hold the state power now. But uh, I think we have to follow very closely um, uh, the development of the Amhara reaction to the current government. Uh, it's very difficult to read for a foreigner. You can see the reaction from the terrain. But um, what you see is, uh, I mean, what it seems Abid is trying to do is uh, moving uh, from the OLF, OPDO version of Ethiopia towards more a, a unity state formation, which, uh, which will create a lot of, uh, of uh, resistance inside Ethiopia because it's about changing the federal state uh, formation in Ethiopia. And that could lead to, to serious internal strife in, in Ethiopia. And, and I don't think we have seen the last word. Which means that uh, Ethiopia is not able to impose its power on the neighboring countries as it has done for, for, for the last uh, 20 years. Um, I have a question that's a bit general, but to what degree uh, are the Gulf states or other external actors, uh, uh, powers involving in these countries open about their own agendas when they invest or or uh, in other ways, uh, engage themselves. Yeah. It, uh, it's not much openness, uh, and that's kind of tradition. You know, uh, personally, I conducted field studies in a lot of challenging countries. So I worked in Sudan, I worked in uh, northern Nigeria, I worked in uh, Somalia, I worked in the border areas in Pakistan. The worst uh, country I ever conducted field studies in was actually Qatar, the most luxurious but also the worst, because it's an inherently intransparent society. Uh, very often, I wonder if Ian Petter agrees with this, but very often you're dealing with an MFA who doesn't function like the Norwegian Minister of Foreign Affairs. You know, the contacts are much more important. A lot of the things are go uh, policy making is going on on the golf course and the racetrack. And to a certain extent, uh, the MFs are even more confusing because uh, you have this relationship between the Martin family inside Dubai and uh, Al Nayan family, and they are there is a bit of power struggle going on there all the time, and that means that they want to have the foreign policy agendas a little bit clandestine. But you can establish a modus operandi all the time. You can see what they're actually doing, and then you have Emirates going against the Muslim Brotherhood and Qatar, for example, promoting the Muslim Brotherhood, and that's one of the big differences between those two. Mm. Are there other examples that you others would like to talk about? Probably, I'll start with uh, what is going on in Ethiopia. Uh, that is, I think we can see two trends in Ethiopia now. One is those who are trying to create a state 
based on civic identity, that is an identity on individual citizenship. And on the other side, we have those who want to preserve ethnic identity. Now, the problem of uh, Adi is, uh, in fact, he is losing within the Oromos community because the Oromos, they don't want to lose their ethnic identity. Now, uh, just what happened a few months in the Oromo region, there was a demonstration against Adi and they were calling him Adi, which means the, the name given to the Amhara settlers during the entrance in the lift to settle in the Oromo region because he is trying to reconfigure the Ethiopian state based on ethnic, uh, sorry, on civic identity. Now, many those who have gained self-respect based on their ethnic identity, they are not prepared to lose it. So, uh, probably what we will see is the struggle between those who want to preserve ethnic identity and those who are struggling I think we should also take into consideration there is historical, cultural, religious connection between the, the Gulf and uh, North Africa. Uh, Ethiopians have seen themselves as an island of Christianity. And what you said, Saudi Arabia as an enemy, is a continuation of the Assyrian uh, mental setup that they are always surrounded by. But for the rest, you go uh, from Somalia, Djibouti, uh, Sudan, they are mostly Arabic. And in fact, the reason for them to be mostly Arabic, the Eritreans, they are half half. In the half, you have the Muslims, they are cultural, historical, religious connection with the Arabs. But also during the struggle, most of the Arab countries, the cultures, have been actively supporting the struggle. So the Eritreans, whether the Christians or Muslims, they recognize that historical condition. So we should understand the Gulf's role in North Africa from that historical, cultural, religious perspective. Yeah, interesting. And Sigar, you want to comment on that? Yeah, I just wanted to, uh, you know, uh, one of the dynamics when it comes to Eritrea that shouldn't be forgotten, you know, in addition to their early uh, dictations with Iran, uh, is the, the after the turn the Eritrean engagement in Yemen, which was rather heavy, supplying mercenaries for the United Arab Emirates from basically in Yemen. So a lot of the mercenaries that were hosted by the United Arab Emirates uh, was basically from Eritrea, also from other countries like Sudan, but the engagement was rather heavy, so you can see Eritrea as a strategic ally of the Emirates in, the, in Yemen. And adding to the complexity of the last year is, of course, that the Yemen has seen a fallout between Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, which means that these two old allies are falling more apart, but still you have this strategic axis between Eritrea and the Emirates in, inside the Yemen that shouldn't be forgotten. Now, uh, a country that we haven't talked very much about, uh, obviously because it's in the Gulf, is the US, the traditional superpower of the world. And recently we have seen increasing tension between, serious tension between Iran and 
and the US. And I'm, I would like to ask you also how this conflict might play out or affect uh, countries in, in the Horn, for example, and via other uh, via the relations that the US and, and Iran have. Well, uh, for me, in, uh, in my Horn of Africa project, one of the dimension is the external engagement. Uh, and we could start during the Cold War. We will have uh, the superpowers which converted the region into their own uh, battleground. Uh, following that came the war on terror. Now what I did mention in this reconfiguration or reconstruction of the Somali state is we had a domestic attempt to reconstitute the Somali state in 2006. That is the Islamic Union cause. They tried for six months. Whatever ideological difference we might have, that was an attempted, a domestic attempted, a genuine domestic attempt, which was aborted by the American administration because they didn't like the Islamic cause. Uh, now, in recent years, the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia has spilled over in the Horn of Africa. Initially, uh, the Saudis tried to use whatever power they have for all the Horn of Africa states support them. And immediately, Somalia, Djibouti, Sudan, severed diplomatic relationship with Iran and joined the coalition. Uh, that shows you, one is, because they are members of the Arab League. As members of the Arab League, they have the obligation <coughs> to support, which is a member of the Arab League. But also they have the affiliation, which I said, the cultural, the historical, and the religious dimension. We should also remember all the uh, Muslim communities in the whole of Africa, the Sunnis. Unlike the Iran, they are Sunnis. So Saudi Arabia is not even close to the whole in terms of the religious sects than Iran. When it comes to the Eritrea, Eritrea has been playing uh, for the last uh, 20 years it was the survival issue, I think. One is the Americans, because for, uh, for the Eritreans, it was not a joke of the Americans. And in their understanding, the American role was a threat to their survival as a state, as an independent sovereign nation. So whatever means there is, get out of that siege of that isolation. It's not a matter of isolation, it's not a matter of philosophy, it's a matter of survival. So whatever, uh, and also we should remember the, the, the Ethiopians created a coalition between Yemen, Sudan, and Ethiopia, and Djibouti, Somali, strangulate Eritrea. So for them is to get out of that. So whoever, is against that kind of coalition, 
I think I agree with uh, the previous speaker that Iran is not uh, that important uh, in the war. Uh, there are some investment alongside the coast, for example, in Kenya and Tanzania, and the Shias are increasing in those areas, so that should, should be something that you keep in mind. Uh, what's interesting now is the United States, because the United States is changing, the region is changing. They've been talking about cutting off the African, deleting the Afri uh, African command. Before the war on terror was very much important for the uh, United States, but what we see now is that the United States is becoming more and more focused on China. Uh, I remember meeting an American diplomat, I think uh, two years ago, basically maintaining that the priorities of the United States from uh, the 10 most important priorities of the United States in the world was number one to nine, China, number 10, Shabbat. Uh, so China is becoming much more stronger and important for the Shabbat United States is a little bit ambivalent to the two actors, Emirates and Qatar, uh, because the United States need their central command and they need their air bases in Qatar, but they know now that Qatar is not a free, fully fledged ally of the United States, although they maintain it, and the Trump administration has been quite adamant. Inside the United States, I've kind of seen a difference between the State Department and the Pentagon, and the Pentagon is the one protecting the Qatar there, and these discussions in the United States might have repercussions of the war. And it's also a question where Qatar and Turkey will go in the relations, in the rivalry with the United States and other nations. So the United States, no, in the war, it's more focused on great power rivalry than any of the local factors. They're there, they don't want to use a lot of resources, they see Shebal as less important, but they see nervously on the Chinese base in Djibouti. That, that's how they, uh, the focus of the United States is uh, going. I agree, and uh, I also felt as ambassador to Iran, using uh, allies uh, in the region. And if you look at, I mean, it was very easy for Saudi Arabia to dislodge Iran from Sudan in, in 2013. And, and, uh, and the same with Eritrea. So, I mean, uh, Iran was there with the, with the naval ships regularly in, in Port of Sudan, but it was very easy for Saudi Arabia to dislodge it. And if you look at the horn, the only place where they are, the real or Houthis community is in Yemen. I mean, a, a small when a small group in, in the West, but it's very, very tiny. Um, so, um, but what you see, uh, and I'm taking this then to Nigeria, where you have a, a substantial Shia minority, uh, two to seven million Shias. And there you see a, a very definite proxy between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, because the Shias are, should be a threat to stability of uh, Nigeria. So then there you see a lot uh, of uh, 
uh, saw their uh, engagement. And as you said, I mean, uh, when it comes to transparency, that there's no transparency, it's not necessarily Saudi Arabia as a state. It, it, uh, it, it is the foundations of different groups uh, inside the royal family who is distributing money. And it comes in, in bags, like um, President Bashir of Sudan found 50 million in his, in his residence, which he said he hadn't distributed yet. So this, this was Saudi Arabian money. Okay. So you're then, then uh, Yes, uh, okay. the, the Saudi uh, interaction was important. Now, you should not assume, because Vietnam was uh, an outcome of and uh, if deep down you don't feel uh, it is in their interest, whether it comes from the Saudi or from whoever it is, they simply reject it. Now, uh, for the last two years, the Saudis and the Egyptians have been trying to address this problem. Vietnams have been involved and have been, they have been rejected until this year. And the reason was because they are not confident of the Arabic, they are not confident of the Gaza, and say, they said, we don't need another Arabic or another Gaza kind of organization. Finally, uh, the electoral states agreed on June 5 to create what they call the uh, Council uh, Coalition of uh, Arab and African states neighboring Red Sea and uh, the, no, the Gaza, uh, the Arab Gulf. The, the Red Sea Council, I think. Yeah, the, the Red Sea Council, it was uh, announced in... In Riyadh. Mm -hmm. In Riyadh, in, uh, on the 5th of January this year. After some days, the state minister of Saudi Arabia issued a statement taking credit for the Ethiopian Western Affairs Minister. There was a strong statement from the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ethiopia denouncing that statement. So, you know, the Ethiopian government, they don't feel that it is within their understanding and in their interest, whoever it comes, they will react. So the Saudis, they have been trying, but at the end, they also played in removing the sanctions. Because unless they convince the Africans, they will not come abroad. I, I, I kind of respectfully disagree slightly because this Saudi Arabia military approach versus that they are so imbalanced. You know, that, that, that it's so many sanctions that they can bring to bear against their ground. In one sense, I agree with you because uh, it's national interest, but the pressure of Saudi Arabia was so intense. Uh, and uh, that's point number one. Point number two is I want to warn people here a little bit about some analysts of the Norwegian media, because when you discuss Iran and the Gulf, you might read some uh, newspaper articles, sometimes in VG or Aftenposten, saying that uh, Qatar and Iran has a strategic relationship that they are allied, and I think that's utterly wrong. It's not true. It's a more pragmatic alliance. You know, Iran was to a certain extent there when the Qatar fell out. Uh, so you shouldn't see Qatar, I'm not sure if any of you sees it, I just want to warn you, you shouldn't see Qatar as an extended hand of Iran inside the Gulf. 
if a car has a stability tower, you know, that would be perfect, make no mistake about it. <coughs> okay, um, we will soon open up for questions from the audience. Uh, I just want to take a step back and look at the, the topic that was why uh, those states are so interested. And we have talked a lot about you know, security issues and also historical, cultural issues. But um, what are the economic interests uh, and, and where do we find the most uh, heavy um, uh, things in economic interests and, and yeah, how is the plan involvement playing out? Feel free. <laughs> expanding their port controls, also outside the region. So there's a commercial active uh, attempt uh, to control. And uh, when you come to Emirates, you also see the shapes of the Yemeni civil war entering into uh, the Horn of Africa, where there has been a need on behalf of the Emirates. In, in fact, you can see the Babara base to a certain extent like that. Uh, need to have logistical bases for the major effort inside Yemen. And just to, to uh, state that very clearly, you know, the, uh, in the civil war against the Houthis, it has been the Emirates who have run the land forces until quite recently. Now they fell at odds with Saudi Arabia, so now they have differences with Saudi Arabia. They pulled out their own forces, but they control some of the regional militias that are uh, basically now in control even of uh, Aden. So you have an interest on behalf of the Emirates to really build up uh, logistics in relations to uh, to. Uh, I think factor number three is basically the contact network, and that's where Qatar has come in and entered uh, into Somalia. There's old contact networks there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, Dr. I think we have to, to, to add the economy to this, because if you look at uh, Ethiopia, it's a, it's a huge country. Uh, their economy has been growing. It's a potential market, and it's a potential where you can uh, make investments into agriculture. And then we have to include Sudan in this and, and the great Renaissance Dam and with the, the controlling of the Nile waters. Then uh, you see now Emirati, Saudi Arabian, Egyptian and, and other uh, big companies investing in Sudanese land uh, to, uh, to make Sudan what it once was and could have been uh, a, a food basket for the Arabian Peninsula. I think from a political economy uh, perspective, uh, as I said uh, in my introduction, uh, you know, economic power uh, tends to be uh, transferred into political and diplomatic and geostrategic power. Now, uh, what the Gulf states are doing, they are trying to translate their economic power into military, it's political and diplomatic power, especially when we take into consideration the retreat of the Americans, because America has been a garage for Gulf states. Now, once America is retreating, 
what they are doing is using their economic power to get influence economically outside their own uh, territory. Investment in Ethiopia, the investment uh, for many years now. Uh, issue of ports in uh, Somaliland sharing with Ethiopia, not only the Arab Ninety percent belongs to Ethiopia. So, to me, the, the Gulf states are using their economic power to get influence militarily, diplomatically, uh, economically. Especially when now the Americans in Ethiopia and the hegemonic struggle between Iran and Saudi is getting hotter and hotter. So that they are positioning themselves. And the rest is very important because it is the main uh, trade lane who controls that, controls the region. So that is what they are doing. Okay, now I have a final question before we open up for the audience. Yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to make a quick uh, speculation here because what's really interesting for me is to look at the Emirates agenda in Somalia in addition to their agenda in Yemen, in addition to the Emirates itself. Because the Ed Emirates itself is a kind of very federalized state, although it's a kind of power-sharing agreement between uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, it's a lot of powers delegated to the local levels. And if you look at their pattern inside the Yemen, it actually repeats itself inside Somalia. So I'm, I, it, it's a valuable speculation, although it has to be researched into more. So you have a delegation of public power uh, focused on uh, local entities, uh, like the Emirates itself, a lot of delegation downwards to the region, to regional states, if you want, and then that's actually repeated inside Somalia. So the Emirates hasn't made a public statement about that, but that modus operandi coming out of Yemen and Somalia is also an interesting factor that is a kind of a fundament for further an an analysis. Yeah. Now, um, in back in October, Norway's former minister, development minister, uh, Inge Stratt-Bilundsson, wrote about exactly the topic that we are discussing now, uh, and she wrote uh, on the PRIO website that uh, the international community and especially the Western countries have been asleep at the wheel while all this has been happening. Do you agree, Jens Petter? And if anyone of uh, your others would like to comment, please. It's very difficult for me to comment about that. <laughs> this is another thing. Yeah. But that's why I asked you. <laughs> uh, well, for me, uh, I'm not a politician. And I'm uh, an academician, and um, uh, the fundamental question is why should the West or East or whoever uh, has uh, the, the, the feeling to have the interest to be involved? Now, uh, one of the problems uh, the Horn of Africa is facing with this aggressive uh, involvement from the, the Gulf states, particularly the Arab Emirates, is that because they cannot unite themselves. If they could unite and have a common front, common understanding, instead of using a tactical maneuver to use and abuse, uh, I think we, we will not have all this 
positioning either from the Gulf or the, from the Chinese or from the American or from the European Union. Uh, I have been working on regional integration in this regard. Uh, regional integration is probably the, the solution for the region itself. Because the states have to be united, they have to have a common idea, a common ideology, a common approach, a common interest. Then whatever comes from outside will be to their benefit. But as long as they are not united, for me, for the last 20 years, the Ethiopian European conflict has been the epicenter of the problem in West Africa. Now we see that rapprochement, and that rapprochement has created a new dynamism. Now the three present the leaders of Ethiopia, Somalia, and Eritrea, the third summit they had was just yesterday. Monday and Sunday. Uh, and if they could continue in that spirit and involve Djibouti, Sudan, and the others, then you are creating a, an integrated region. So we don't need to study intervention. Uh, first, thanks for your Yeah, no, I, I first bought myself some time. Diplomatic immunity. No, I, I think uh, what I started saying was what, what uh, Melisinawi said about uh, the threat from the, uh, from the Arabian Peninsula in, in 2006, 2007. But taking it even, uh, and, and this is what's common knowledge, everyone knew that this, this would undermine the stability of the Horn of Africa. Um, then I, I agree completely. I mean, the outbreak of the uh, Ethiopian Eritrean War. Um, Changed the whole Africa. Until then, the, the unity in Idlib and Hakik, driven by Ethiopian and uh, Eritrean unity in Turkey, um, was, was a fundamental change, and that alliance broke, broke, uh, broke down. So, um, I mean, it's um, in 1997, there was a, a Idlib had a, a 21 process undergoing of coalition integration. Yeah, I, I wanted to add that I had the pleasure uh, of, uh, you know, uh, watching the MFA when they, because in all fairness, you know, uh, I, correct me if I'm, uh, I'm wrong, Jesper, but it seemed to come as a little bit of surprise for the Norwegian MFA that a country with 200,000 inhabitants could play a role in peace mediations and rather in conflicts around the world because the Qatari and Emirati influence is felt around the world. It's not only in the war. And it, keep to, it came as a surprise maybe for the Emirates as well because here we talk about 900,000, so it's 200,000. It's smaller than Oslo in population and it's 900,000, you know, a little bit bigger than Oslo. So it's small states we're talking about. But I would like to comment and uh, actually... Uh, I think the uh, MFA was handling this quite well when they became aware of, aware of it, you know. Putting up a task force between the units to, to kind of study the Qatari and Emirati interests. But there is a paradox here. It's not strange that they surprised uh, us in many ways because it's such a small, it's such small states and then they make themselves felt in Libya, in West Africa, 
in the Horn of Africa, all the places in the Middle East. So it's a kind of uh, puzzling uh, state of affairs. Okay. Oh, no, I think uh, uh, Diver in, in Qatar, as, as at least as early as 2000, still discussed with the Qataris which one they can play in, in on the Horn of Africa as well. And what did they say? <laughs> uh, that was at an early stage of their engagement, but we, we tried to do, uh, and we created contact at that time uh, with the current um, uh, State Secretary Leader Helmerson, and uh, we became very close to the, to the Emirates. So um, we have been following them quite closely since then. Okay, yeah. Uh, final word from Zadi. Conception. What the, the Saudis, the Arab Emirates play in the Ethiopian Western Partition for me is very minimal. Uh, uh, I wrote a book, it came last year, a small book, called The Rapprochement. Uh, in my understanding, it is the maturity of the former state that allowed the rapprochement. So, uh, the state minister of Saudi Arabia wants to take credit on that. And the reaction from the European government is very strong and it was legitimate because uh, the Saudis or the Arab Emirates, they need place in the Middle East. It's simply been facilitated because from both sides they were willing. And that feeling gave the opportunity for those, whether small or big, that facilitation. So there is a misconception as if the Saudis or the Arab Emirates played a slightly role. And that's wrong. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, we have some time now for questions from the audience. And I kindly ask you to, yeah, uh, can we, we don't have another microphone, do we? No. Okay. Uh, please come to the front and um, introduce yourself. and. If possible, direct uh, your question to one of the panelists or the whole panel. Uh, please. Yeah. My name is uh, Solomon, and uh, I graduated from environmental geology from the University of Oslo, and I came uh, from uh, Ethiopia, and uh, I have a question to Rabai. Uh, you are using uh, your plan to explain the power struggle in Ethiopia is uh, between military and uh, uh, Ethiopian government. But uh, I want to ask you one question. Is it appropriate to use the ethnic federalism or ethnic identity? For me, it is a little bit offending because uh, you, you should use, you should choose a word that is multinationality, for example, cancer. Because the federal arrangement in Ethiopia, we have uh, the nine states, Tigray, Amhara, Oromia, Southern, Gambia, Benchangul. With, within those states, for example, in Tigray, we have uh, three ethnicities, Europe, Rama, and Tigray. So is it appropriate to use the ethnic? Uh, my second question is, you said that the power is shifting from uh, Northern or Abyssinia to Southern, but why the Southern and Oromia, they are not happy about the government. They are complaining, protesting since uh, the Prime Minister came to power. So why they are not happy? If the power is uh, under the southern and Romania uh, people, uh, the third question is: I want 
point uh, you took to verify about the inter ERTA intervention, for example, in Ethiopia, and also the Abiy Ahmed, for example, with there is a conspiration, we are not sure, we don't have evidence, but he has, um, uh, he just, there, it is conspiring his, with Eritrean president to attack his own citizens, for example, to interact. And uh, I want a little bit to clarify that uh, it is the effect of Eritrean intervention in Ethiopia. Thank you, uh, Dede, I'll let you answer that first, and, and mm. okay, yeah, thanks. Uh, okay, uh, well, uh, the terminology of early federalism was in the Constitution. So it was constitutionally defined, uh, the system from 1991 or 94, when it became constitutionally uh, formal, that was the definition. Now, um, you know, the southern peoples, you're right, they consist some, uh, I don't know, 60 ethnic groups. Uh, and that was one of the fallacies when the federal, the ethnic federalism was arranged, having some more or less ethnically homogeneous, while in the south you have all this. And now we see the outcome. Sidama, they had a referendum. They want their own state as an ethnic federal state. And others are uh, demanding for that. So you can see those who have been under the ethnic federal, which they are ethnic regionally, and those who have been denied are struggling for that. And that is a political struggle. Now, um, in terms of uh, whether that is the solution or not, we see the current problem in, in, in Ethiopia. There are some who are struggling for citizen-based federalism, and others, they want to preserve ethnic federalism. So it is the constitution. Uh, why the Oromos are, uh, well, you know, when, now we, we can discuss on that where the EPRD, especially PLF, introduces that, it was based on the Stalin understanding of nationalist nationalism. And it was taken as meaning having those ethnic, whether you call them nationalist nationalities, uh, it is, the ethnic identity, in terms of language, in terms of whatever defines the ethnicity, it was based on that. And that could be a technical understanding, whether nations and nationalists and ethnic, it's, it's not the, the, the main question. Now, why the Oromos are not happy? Because I try to give some answer to that. Uh, Abi is perceived now, because in the last demonstration, we have seen Abi was called Hussein, meaning he has abandoned or betrayed the Oromo ethnonationalism. So they are unhappy because Abi is moving from their own uh, ethnonationalism identity uh, to the involvement of 
yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't know exactly the political uh, statement, so I don't have the information whether Eritrea and Kiri uh, are increasing the, the chaos. Uh, I don't have details, I don't have information. What I know is the agreement, the five point agreement, which is <coughs> known to everyone is in the interest of Eritrea, in the interest of Ethiopia. We know there is a fundamental difference between Eritrea and the, the northern part of Ethiopia. And that goes back to the Armenian struggle. Okay, thank you. I have seen three hands. Uh, first, uh, this gentleman. Um, thank you uh, for the my name is Dawit uh, Kasai and I am from Ethiopia. Uh, my first question is, um, you have all mentioned that the Gulf uh, countries are pretty much interested in the Red Sea trade system to boost their economies and they can uh, empower uh, their military powers to control again that kind of uh, economic trade. But then uh, the Red Sea is mainly uh, the coasts or the ports are uh, owned by Eritrea and Djibouti and Somalia. And in this case, we see now Ethiopia being a target and uh, actually to be specific in a mess. So why is Ethiopia chosen when Ethiopia is actually a landlocked, which doesn't have any direct effect on the port? And my second question would be like, uh, Ethiopia used to have um, a better political ideology than now because we have we have seen now. I'm not sure if we even have a political ideology that we Ethiopians even can tell to any other one. But uh, we had a political ideology which has kept Ethiopia as a sovereign state with prospering economy and a very good uh, diplomatic uh, relationship with the world. But now we seem to. Uh, misunderstood that we had that kind of power and being under a Nobel Prize winner laureate and we don't even know actually where, which direction are we, we are going, being in the middle of the ocean. So given to you said that there is a power shift to the center, the Oromo, and uh, there, there will be a conflict because of the northern speciality guy would feel like the power shift which I will disagree. Um, the Oromos and the Tigray have an agreement wanting that the federal structure of ruling being cut because both they have the same interest. While the Amara ruling party want a citizen-based central government, which Abiy has came with a solution with this new party, Prosperity. So the country, you could say most of the people the citizens are crying for the federal system to be improved, not to be demolished. But the government insists in giving them, this is better for you. And then the country is keeping on uh, disturbances. So what do you think will be for Ethiopia uh, ahead? Thank you. And who are you directing your questions to? I think both of all of all them But I will actually, uh, I think we will have another question and, and we can all have
have a chance to comment on, on the, um, the issues. Uh, yeah, yeah, please. My name is Ismahan. I'm from Somalia originally. And my main question goes to you or anybody can answer. My question very means mainly goes to you. You said American has shifted their interest to China. Do you really think they have shifted their interest to China since they are having military base all over Somalia and all over the Horn of Africa? And the second question is, if Somalia or the Horn of Africans, mostly they are poor countries, how can they use these economical countries to their advantage so they can be peaceful? Thank you. Uh, I will start. Uh, you can start answering uh, the, the first gentleman's question and also the, the, the last question. Uh, and then uh, you can ask your question after that. Uh, well, he pointed out all of these, but I think the inspector is, is uh, <laughs> the easy target. No, uh, I mean, your question about um, uh, Ethiopia and the role uh, in, in the Red Sea. Uh, Ethiopia, as far as I know, is the only only power in the uh, on the African continent with with the maritime industry and with the with, with the interest of, of the security in the in the Maghreb space. Um, and they are also now re-establishing their navy after it was um, lost after the fall of the dirt. Um, and then, secondly, as as you say, I mean, um, there's also very much the containment of Iran because of Yemen's uh, position on the on the other side of the strait. Um, I would like to comment on um, on the Oromo. Uh, if, if you look at Oromo and the Tigrayans, they are more or less, I would say, I mean, the traditional OLF or PDO policies are more or less 95% uh, in agreement with the TPLF policies on. Uh, um, nation, nationalities, and people's rights under federal federal system, and uh, the people are obviously um, afraid of at least a perceived threat to the to the federal setup, and it's not responding to the people's what uh, to the people who came out on the street to uh, to remove the uh, EPRF as it was. Uh, and there's a perceived um, fear of uh, of um, going back to uh, to the uh, as it was during the, the emperor <coughs> during, during the dirt, which um, is uh, contradicting the, the, the current federal system. And um, they, uh, I do believe that they see uh, an Amhara conspiracy and the Eritrean support to that conspiracy, which is, uh, which is uh, making it very difficult for, for, um, for Abid. Thank you. Um, First of all, uh, Ethiopia's inclusion in the Red Sea. Uh, now, uh, one of the problems with this uh, council which is created, just announced in uh, Dubai, in, uh, on the 5th of January, is uh, it excludes two central states, one in Ethiopia and the other in the United Arab Emirates. United Arab Emirates is highly involved in North Africa. Ethiopia is a powerhouse in the region. Excluding these two central states, uh, it shows uh, those who have initiated the agenda have a very narrow 
and Saudis, they are using any mechanism to come to their backyard now and then. But if it is the well-being of the region as a region, then we have to involve the states to have stake in the region. So Ethiopia has a stake, the, pow the powerhouse in, in the Horn of Africa. So without involving Ethiopia, you will not have a sustained, decent, sustainable development. One is that. Uh, I agree with you, the Oromos and the, the Tigrayans, they have common position. That is maintaining the, the ethnic, uh, whether you call it ethnic or whatever you call it, they have that uh, common uh, wish. But the point is, even from a democratic point of view, the Tigrayans are six point six percent of the whole population. So naturally, uh, from a demographic point of view, proportionality. It is the Oromo who should have the, the African, take the African in terms of nationality or ethnicity. But still, both of them want the federal arrangement which preserves their identity. Uh, what, I, what I say is now the trend is going, whether you call them Amhara or any, but there is a clearly emerging tendency. One is trying to reconstitute the Ethiopian state based on civic identity, statistically, proportionally, how big it is, or which ethnic group is uh, pushing it. But you have that one. And then you have the other to maintain the federal arrangement based on identity. So these are the two streams which are emerging now. But I agree with you, the Oromos and the Tigrayans have the same position because they want to keep that uh, arrangement. Uh, finally, to whether the Americans are withdrawing. Um, I want to hear this or? Uh, I can do that. Okay. Yeah. Yes, uh, if you can do that and also maybe uh, answer the question about um, how Somalia, a country like Somalia can, can benefit from supporting the richer countries' interests. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just first want to briefly ma mention that if we talk about Qatar and the Emirates, we talk about uh, actually the interest is in the Gulf. If you look at the Emirati engagement, main uh, engagement and Qatari main engagement, Emirates, but I think bailed out uh, three billion US dollars to Ethiopia in 2017. That was a major move, but uh, the strategic interest in the Gulf, the basis their engagement, their heavy investment is going on in the coastlines. They have a Red Sea focus, you know, it's dwarfed inside Ethiopia by the, the Red Sea uh, focus. Uh, so, so that's important to keep in mind. Americans, if you look at their engagement in the Horn, they have the um, uh, they have uh, one base close to Mogadishu, which fights the Shebel, and I say the Shebel is still on the agenda, but it's contested and it's heavily discussed as we speak. The Americans are discussing about closing the whole Africa. They're discussing about closing off half, half of Africa. They want to, uh, parts of the Trump administration want to move out of the West. They want to stay in the East because of their border engagement. Uh, if you talk to the Americans, maybe Jens Peter can disagree with me here, but if you talk to the Americans, my impression is that they don't care that much about state building in Somalia. 
they care about a stability in Ethiopia because they think it's dangerous for, for Europe, but not so much interest in the, the nitty-gritty of the politics. Inside Somalia, it's very much Shebak focused, but in the all, uh, all of the Horn, it's dwindling down, and you get a more and more focus on China. Secondly, there's a thought, there's a counter-argument to par the part of the Trump administration that wants to withdraw, saying that, you know what, if we stop supporting Somalia, Kenya, and Ethiopia against the Shebab, and for, let's say, in West Africa, Nigeria against the Boko Haram, what will come instead of us? And what scares the Americans is what they saw in Mozambique, where the Russian Wagner group was coming in, when the Americans didn't care. And in Libya, when also the Russian Wagner group was coming in, when the Americans doesn't care. So they are afraid of creating some kind of vacuum that can be filled by others, but there's a lot of restriction in engaging in any agenda, including state building inside Somalia. So what they do in Somalia is support the Dama, the special forces, because they see them as the best allies to against the Shabab and support the drones. Uh, that's what they do, uh, including in Manda Bay, who was a forward uh, reconnaissance base for, for drone attacks, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And the Israeli economic. Uh, uh, there's a huge uh, potential here uh, for economic investments. You know, they are partners in in uh, port development. If you talk about the DP world, they are highly professional. They're not only in the Red Sea. The Qataris are have a track record in peacemaking, although some people disagree with me. But they have been efficient at times. I would say more efficient than us. Yeah. Uh, so so there are uh, advantages, and all of both of these countries are interested in business opportunities. They're still interested in business opportunities. When you get them into your business sometimes you get vested interests as well. So you have to know the nitty-gritty connections in in, uh, in, um, in the various countries. And I saw, uh, we talked, I talked about, the unf maybe unfairly about Norwegian confusion, but I, uh, with regards to Qatar, but I have also had the chance to observe Kenyan confusion when it comes to Qatar. You know, suddenly Qatar and the Emirates and Yemen emerged strongly on the Kenyan agenda and it was hard for them to adapt. You know, it was hard for them to understand Qatari and Emirati politics because they were very important to Kenya suddenly. So you have to know the vested interest because there will be vested interest there. Yeah. We are unfortunately running out of time, but uh, there's a gentleman here who's been waiting for a long time. And uh, we'll see how much time we have left uh, after this. Thank you very much. Uh, it was very interesting. And uh, the thing is, with what, what I was missing is the last uh, thing you were saying, the, the strategic and the alliance formation, which has changed. And it's something which is very new. You have the British in Kenya, and you have the Ethiopians uh, in Ethiopia, where you had Americans supporting them before. But now, then you see the Nile uh, conflict with Egypt. And you see this alliance, which is going on the direction with Turkey and, and, uh, and what do you call it? And, uh, Qatar. Um, so I wanted to hear about, uh, and there's some election which is coming now, both in Ethiopia and in Somalia. Um, in Ethiopia, we know that there, in some way there will be some election. Um, and then the, the main thing is you have then Saudi Arabia and uh, the Imawatis and Qataris, which will flow with some money in this election, in Ethiopia, in some some way or another, because they want their interest, they want their people to win, and they have their own interest. And in Somalia, that then you have Kenya, Ethiopia, and you have the Qataris and the Turkish supporting with a lot of money, a lot of money being flowed there. 
my main question is, can you, on, it's all on you three, because I have not heard about the strategic uh, alliance and the formation of this alliance and how it will um, be uh, formed. Because now, the thing which is happening now with the alliance formation, it's not something which has been there, it's something which is very new. Um, and how it will, in a way, change uh, by time. If you can just take some word on it, because it's very important to hear from you. Thank you. I'll give you a chance to uh, comment on the last question. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I see some large alliances uh, crystallizing themselves. I see a strange alliance between inside Somalia, between Qatar, Ethiopia, Turkey, and the Paramaribo government, and uh, also the premiership of Hassan Kaire. Uh, Ethiopia. We talked about federalism versus centralization, and I do want to stress the point that we had some very awkward and really bad experiments with centralization at the Horn of Africa as well. It led to disasters, you know, the Berg government as well as the dictatorship of Siabari. It really led to disasters. But this cleavage is running across the continent. So what you can see now is Ethiopia actively supporting the central government inside Somalia, dismantling Yuba state structures inside Gedo. Uh, probably going into Gaudu doing things, and in the Southwest Times that you can see it strongly. You can see Qatar coming in on the uh, Prime Minister, especially side, uh, being very strongly there in the regional politics. Uh, you saw it in Gaudu where there was an offering of a port in Hobyo to the followers of the central government. You saw it in the highway construction from Mogadishu to Johar. So you have that alliance on one side. Yeah, Kenya on the other side aligned with Jubaland, but Jubaland is allied with Deni in Puttland, so that's a strange uh, alliance, you might say. Uh, United States being very confused in the middle of all of it, I have to say. And the Emirates, Emirates is the joker here, because I'm far from certain that we should give the same weight to the Emirates as the other ones. Why do I say that? Firstly, because of Yemen. Emirates reverted totally in Yemen this year. There was something weird that happened with the uh, United Arab Emirates this year. And I, I would be happy to ha have the comments of you guys, but you saw tendencies after these incidents with the attacks on tankers outside of uh, Dubai. And suddenly Emirates turn away from Saudi Arabia and Yemen, allies with the Southern Transitional Council, literally have forces supported with the Emirates fighting Saudi Arabia openly in Yemen very different policies. Uh, and the question is, what kind of repercussions will this have for the Emirates inside uh, inside uh, Somalia? At the start, this question was easy, uh, or it seemed to be easy, because you had the Emirati conventional withdrawal from so, uh, Yemen. Basically, they had local allies, but they stopped engaging with their forces. But then you saw this strange use of proxies. Uh, that has re-emerged when you see clearly see Emirates to a certain extent becoming the enemy of Saudi Arabia inside Yemen. And you see the Southern Transition uh, constantly getting closer to the Houthis. It's a very strange development. The question is what kind of ramifications you will have in Somalia. I suspect that maybe you will have a dwindling down of some of the uh, Emirati engagement in the regional states, the ones that are led by Abu Dhabi. But I do suspect that you will see the Dubai-driven world maritime strategy flourishing in the whole of the Red Sea. We only seen the start of it. Uh, the Emirates are going to be there maritimely and they're going to be heavily interested in investing in port. Uh, but then we should keep in mind, in one sense, there's two different dynamics. 
as I said, one of them is Dubai different and the other one is Abu Dhabi different. So, so Emirates, it's a hard estimate. You know, it's very hard to estimate them now. They are changing, the actors are changing. Yeah. We are unfortunately running out of time. I will give Jesper uh, the last word. And I know that there are several questions that haven't been asked and answered. Uh, maybe uh, some of the panelists will stay, stick around, and maybe you can talk to them after uh, we have finished here. Um, but yes, better, please. Very briefly, and uh, I'll go back. I, I served in uh, Somalia during the last days of uh, Siad Barrett. And you saw immediately after the, the fall of Siad Barrett, you saw uh, the Somali um, contradictions coming out, the lack of unity in Somalia. And you saw immediately that Ethiopia and Egypt came on different sides and trying to influence the de developments in, uh, in Somalia. Ethiopia got it their way. They got a, a, a divided and weak Somalia, which is uh, of, I mean, it all goes back to the Ogaden war. So now the biggest challenge um, is for, for Somalis to unite and, and be able to, to take the other countries. And, and that, that's the biggest challenge. How, for, how, how can Somalia, the different, uh, the, the, current uh, decision taking, how can they unite and, and uh, uh, take care of their own interests? Because it's a proxy war and it's going to continue. Okay, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sure there are many topics that we haven't had time to talk about, uh, but I'm sure you will organize new seminars uh, and debates about this. Uh, thank you to all the panelists for, for being here and thank you to the audience for coming. And yeah, thanks.